Thank you, Kurt and Amanda and Kim, for beautifully leading us into worship this morning. It's great to have Pastor Matt and Melissa back with us today. Um, it's good that we have all our tough mutters back somewhat unscathed. So um, we'll be in Galatians chapter 3 this morning, if you want to go ahead and turn there. Um, in the Pew Bibles, if that's what you're using, it will be on page 973, Galatians chapter 3, and we'll be focusing in on verses 15 through 22. Um, to begin, though, I'd like to share with you a story um, that comes from uh, the magazine Moody Monthly, and I don't think he's here today, but I, I'd like to thank uh, Mark Parminer for, for referring me to this, to this story here. So, Charles Spurgeon and Joseph Parker both had churches in London in the 19th century. On one occasion, Parker um, commented on the poor condition of children admitted to Spurgeon's orphanage. It was reported to Spurgeon, however, that Parker had criticized the orphanage itself. Uh, Spurgeon blasted Parker the next week from the pulpit. The attack was printed in the newspapers and became the talk of the town. People flocked to Parker's church uh, the next Sunday to hear his rebuttal. Parker said this, I understand Dr. Spurgeon is not in his pulpit today, and this is the Sunday they used to take the offering for the orphanage. I suggest we take a love offering here instead. The crowd was delighted. The ushers had to empty the collection plates three times. Later that week, there was a knock at Parker's study. It was Spurgeon. And he said to Parker, You know, Parker, you have practiced grace on me. You have given me not what I deserved. You have given me what I needed. Through Joseph Parker's gracious actions, Spurgeon was reminded of the gospel, that by what Christ has done for him, he was not given what he deserved, but what he needed to be right with God. So from our time together this morning, I hope we can see more clearly that God, through both his law and his promises, has not given us what we deserve, but, but what we need. That, that we see our need to remi be reminded of God's grace in the gospel and, and remind others by exemplifying God's grace um, in our lives. So, and if we do this, I think we will experience more joy and freedom, not only in our personal lives, but also together in our lives as the body of Christ. <clears throat> so before we get to, to the text this morning, I, I want to give um, kind of a short um, look at, at where we've been so far in Galatians here. Paul is writing this letter um, primarily to combat a group that had come into these churches um, teaching against the gospel of free grace. Um, they were coming in saying that um, it, it wasn't just faith in Christ that was necessary for, for salvation, that it was faith in Jesus plus works of the law, plus obeying uh, the Mosaic laws, and, and circumcision was also necessary for, for salvation. Um, 
They even called into question Paul's apostleship. So, so in the first two chapters, Paul is defending his call as an apostle and, provide, and proving he was preaching the very same gospel as the other apostles. And then in, in, in the chapter 3, he begins his theological defense of the gospel. Uh, starting in verse 6, he turned to the Old Testament scriptures to show the Galatians that the gospel had been preached beforehand to Abraham and that Abraham was counted righteous not on grounds of keeping the law, for the law had not even been given yet, but by simply believing the promises of God. He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So he goes on into verses 10 and 12 to show from the scriptures that the law never could give life. It couldn't make one right with God. Um, that, that less than perfect obedience to the law only results in being cursed under the just condemnation of God. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them, he says in, in verse 10, and he's quoting Deuteronomy 27, 26 uh, there. Then in verses 13 and 14, he shows how Christ redeemed those who trust on him from the curse of the law by being hanged on a tree, by becoming a curse for them. Um, and how he took the penalty for our inability to keep the law upon himself as our substitute on the cross. So, in our passage today, Paul, Paul is, is going deeper into his theological defense of the gospel. He's going to refer back to salvation history and God's covenant with his people, mainly the Abrahamic covenant referred to as the promises and the Mosaic covenant, which he refers to as the law to show that God has always dealt graciously with his people throughout the whole Bible. So read with me our text, Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 22. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put into place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. God forbid, by no means. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. So three things I want us to see from our time together and from our, this text is the preeminence and priority of God's promises. Second, the purpose of the law. And third, how they come together in the gospel. So let's first consider the, the preeminence and priority of God's promises. Read again with me verse 15. 
To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls to it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Uh, The apostle begins here with an illustration to show the priority of God's covenant with Abraham over and against the covenant with Moses made at Sinai. Even with a man-made covenant, no one makes it invalid or adds to it once it has been signed off on. Right? The, the word used in these verses for covenant could also be translated a will or testament. Uh, the, <clears throat> think of how our Bible's structured. Old Testament, New Testament, Old Covenant, uh, New Covenant. And, and the idea of a man's last will and testament fits well with the language of inheritance used down in verse 18. Too, for, for one of the main purposes of a will is the giving of a promised inheritance. So the idea of promise is, is also woven into the purpose of a will and covenant. Um, the ancient Greek, in ancient Greek law, once a will was executed and ratified, it could not be revoked or changed in any way. And this is probably what Paul has in mind here. And, and he's making an argument from the lesser to the greater. He's saying, if these things are so in your dealings with each other, once a will is made and then signed off on, it can't be changed, how much more is this so in God's dealings with you? Right? So now to what promise, what will, what covenant is Paul alluding to that cannot be revoked or changed in any way? Let's read verse 16 again. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. What Paul is referring to here is God's initial uh, promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. If you'll go ahead and turn there with me, Genesis chapter 12, and we'll be looking over to Genesis chapter 15 too. So here is where God first makes his promise to Abraham, where God calls him to leave his country and kindred to go to a land that he will show him. God promises to make him into a great nation, to bless him. Abraham obeys. And when he arrives, if you look there at verse 7, he says, Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. And it says he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. And then go ahead and turn over to chapter 15. And and it's here that God seals this promise with a covenant. Here, Abraham is, is wondering how he will ever become this great nation that God has promised him because um, he still remains childless and without an heir. So, so God has him look up to the sky and, and reassures him that his descendants will be more numerous than the stars. And it's here that Abraham, Abraham is reckoned righteous in, in verse 6, as I spoke of earlier, because he simply believed and trusted in the promises of God. Then God goes a step further to reassure Abraham of his promises. Read with me verses 8 and 11, and then we'll read 17 and 18 also. Verses 8 through 11. 
But he said, O Lord, how God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all of these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. And then it says in verse 17, When the sun had, had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Usually in this covenant ritual, both parties involved passed between these cloven animals. These animals were split. And, and they were symbolically saying, if we don't hold up our end of, of this promise of, of this covenant, may we become as these animals, right? But, but here only God himself, represented by the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch, passes between the carcasses, saying that the fulfillment of these promises uh, it depends solely on him. For Abraham, it was free and unconditional, no strings attached. And we saw in verse 18 that, that while the immediate fulfillment of this promise to Abraham was physical and geographical, that, that God would give him this land from uh, the, the river Egypt to the great river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, all the ites there, um, <clears throat> the ultimate fulfillment is a spiritual fulfillment. And this is what Paul is getting at in his exegesis of the word offspring in, in verse 16 of our Galatians passage. Paul picked up on the fact that the word used for offspring or seed in Genesis 12 and 15 are in the singular, not meaning, meaning many, but one. <clears throat> and it's the same word used the same way found in Genesis 3:15, where God promises an offspring singular, from Eve that would, that would be bruised by the serpent as he was crushing his head. So, so all of Scripture is pointing to this one offspring as the fulfiller of God's promises. And it's God himself, God the Son. Conceived by the Holy Spirit, a descendant of Adam and Eve, a descendant of Abraham, a son of David, the king that would sit on his throne forever made just as we are yet without sin, who has secured, it is him that has secured the inheritance of eternal life for all who trust on him as Abraham did. All the promises of God, 2 Corinthians 1.20 say, find their yes in him, in Christ. Now, now back to our, our Galatians passage. In verse 17, Paul expands on the illustration that he had made in verse 15. He says, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. <clears throat> so, so the very chronology of the covenants reveals their priority. Pretty straightforward. The, the Abrahamic covenant with the promises predates the Mosaic covenant with the law. Therefore, it takes precedence and is not changed by the later covenant, is what he's saying. 
And Paul continues in verse 18 to show how the promises and the law are opposed to one another in terms of inheritance and salvation. Verse 18, he says, For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. The very way in which an inheritance works testifies to the, to the truthfulness of this statement. And an inheritance is, for, for the most part, not something that is earned. Um, it, it's a gift, something that is given and not contingent on performance. But the law is all about doing and performing and earning. So, so to, seek the to seek the inheritance of God that is peace with God through the works of the law, is to do away with the promises of God. It is, in essence, nullifying, making to no effect the grace of God in Christ. So, so the promises of God and the law of God, in terms of their ability to, to secure the inheritance of God, are fundamentally opposed to one another. But, but through the, though the law cannot secure salvation, doesn't mean that it is of no use which leads into the second point, the purpose of the law. Read with me verses 19 and 20. So why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put into place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Paul is anticipating here an objection from the Judaizers. Well, if it's only through faith in Christ and not observance of the law that one becomes a beneficiary of the promises of God to Abraham, then what's the point of the law? The, this gospel of yours makes no room for the law. You are, you are simply teaching man everywhere against the law, but Paul's ahead of them. Um, God has at least two fundamental purposes for the law. The first we'll, we'll call the common, the common purpose of the law. The common purpose of the law is to keep in check civil transgressions, civil disobedience. It restricts the power of Satan and sin in the world. Uh, this is the use of the law um, that Paul speaks about in Romans 13, that um, those who are in power do not bear the sword in vain. They're there to restrain evil. Um, this is the reason God has instituted governments police officers, parents, um, civil um, restrictions and ordinances. Without this common use of the law, the world would be utter chaos and anarchy. It is how God, God, the God of order keeps order in a fallen and confused world. But this is not, this is not the purpose to which Paul is referring to in our passage. Uh, the common purpose is, more, is assigned more to the, the temporal dealings of man in the world, but this special purpose of the law that Paul is referring to here in Galatians deals with the spiritual and eternal condition of man. It, its purpose is not simply to restrain man's sin, but to reveal his utter depravity and the holiness of God. He says the law was added because of transgressions. In several places in the book of Romans, Paul elaborates this point. In uh, three, chapter 3, verse 20, he says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified by in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law shows us to be sinners. You ever lied? 
sinner. It shows us to be a sinner. And that's just one of them. And it says if you failed at one point of the law, you failed it at all in accordance with your standing with God. Right? So um, Martin Luther puts it this way in his commentary. As long as a person is not a murderer, an adulterer, or a thief, he would swear that he is righteous. Well, at least I'm not a murderer. At least I'm a pretty decent person. But that still doesn't measure up to God's righteousness. As long as a person is not a murderer, adulterer, or a thief, he would swear that he is righteous. How is God going to humble such a person except by the law? The law is the hammer of death, the thunder of hell, and the lightning of God's wrath to bring down the proud and shameless hypocrite. It is what God uses to humble us to see our need for Christ. The events that took place when the Israelites reached Sinai to receive this very law gives a very clear picture of this special use of the law. If you would, turn with me to Exodus chapter 19. So here we have the Israelites encamped around Mount Sinai. God had just delivered them out of Egypt. Um, he had brought the ten, they'd seen the ten plagues brought down upon Egypt. They'd, they'd seen the Red Sea split. They'd received the manna from, from heaven. God had provided water for them from a, from a rock. And, and here they are at Mount Sinai encamped around, around it. And God says in verse 5 there, that, that if they will obey him and keep his covenant, then they will be his people. And then in, in verse 8, they very assuredly answered, all, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So Moses reports to God what the people had answered, and, and God says, behold, I am coming to you. Then God tells Moses to command the people to con consecrate themselves um, to ready themselves to behold their God, <clears throat> to wash their garments, to refrain from relations uh, with their wives, um, to make themselves as clean as they can, themselves. Then the, then the third day comes when they are confronted with the reality of God's holiness. Read with me verses 16 through 19. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in the thunder. And, and right after this, we have the giving of the law, the, ten, the summation of the law there in the Ten Commandments, and then we have the reaction to the people of this, this revealing of God's holiness to them. And they say in chapter 20, verses 18 and 19, now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking and the people were afraid and trembling and they stood far off. They stood far off 
and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. So what did all of the people's efforts to cleanse themselves do when they were confronted with the law and the holiness of God? Nothing. Nothing. It says they reacted by standing far off, by by distancing themselves from this theophany of God and His holiness. The law had revealed to them the separation that existed between them and God because they were sinners. The law showed them that despite all their efforts, they were not fit to be in the presence of a holy God. But that wasn't all they realized. There in, in verse 19, they said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. They, they saw God had provided a mediator, a person through whom they could approach him in Moses. And this leads to my my final point, how the law and the promises of God come together in the gospel. So back to our Galatians passage. How the gospel and the law or the promises and the law come together in the gospel. Verses 21 and 22. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. God forbid. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scriptures imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So up to this point, Paul has been stressing how the law given to Moses and the promises made to Abraham are, are their, their distinctions, right? How they are distinct from one another. The promise came before the law. The law was of a temporary nature in that it was added because of transgressions until the offspring, the Christ to whom the promises were made, should come. And the law was given from God to angels, then to Moses, but the promises were given directly from God to Abraham. He was showing the priority over the law. Uh, but although the law and promises are distinct from one another, in those ways does not mean they contradict one another. God forbid. By no means. They function together in God's plan of redemption in, in distinct yet complementary ways. First, we see the law does not function as a mean to attaining righteousness. Righteousness and life are connected here. For to be righteous is to have right standing with God, and to have right standing with God is to have life, life everlasting. The law represents God's will, but is not the source of life. It reveals how people should live, but doesn't provide the power to enable people to live in the way that pleases God. In fact, it was to show that we are powerless to attain righteousness and life by means of law-keeping. The law has imprisoned everything under sin, he says. Its, its function is to show that we are all prisoners of sin, slaves to sin. What is the one thing that all prisoners want? Freedom. It's to be released, right? To be granted freedom. Um, I help with the, the gospel ministry at the local jail here, and what do you think one of the most 
often prayer requests is. It's for family and cases. They want prayers for their family and their cases. They ask for prayers concerning their cases because they know the only hope for release comes from seeking the mercy of a judge. And this is how the law and the promise of God work together in the gospel. The law hymns us in, revealing to us that we are not keepers of God's law, but breakers of it. That we are prisoners of our sin on the island of Alcatraz, powerless in and of ourselves to be released from the just condemnation of God. And so it shows us the only hope of release and freedom comes from seeking the grace and mercy of the judge that is found only in the offspring, the offspring to which the promise was made. The everlasting covenant that was spoken of in the scripture that was read earlier from Genesis 17, how God was making a people for himself, is taken hold of, is given to those who put their faith in and trust on the offspring that is Christ Jesus, to whom all the promises find their yeses. If you want, you can turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9, and we'll, we'll wrap this up. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that, so that those who are called may receive the promised internal, eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. You know, I mentioned earlier about the Israelites seeing their need for a mediator and seeing Moses as that one at the time, but uh, the law was intended to point us to the true and better mediator the true and better Moses who would fulfill the demands of the law on behalf of his people and bear the curse of the law upon himself by being hung on a cross. The law points us to the, the true and better Adam who wouldn't sit back while his bride was being deceived by Satan but crushed his head by fully resisting him, satisfying God's wrath against sin on the cross and conquering death in his resurrection. The law points us to the offspring, the son for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, his one and only offspring, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So what to do with this? If you are in my hearing today and have yet to acknowledge your need for Christ, I say put down your own standard of righteousness. God has set the standard and none of us measure up. But where there was no way, God himself has made a way and shown his love for you and that while you were yet his enemy, Christ died for you. Simply repent, turn from your sin, confess it to God, and trust on the work of Christ. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, the master of your life, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. May today be the day of your salvation. And church, as you read and, and study the Bible, seek 
and, and seek to um, see and understand how it all fits together, how, how, how it, it is God progressively revealing his plan of salvation through, through Christ from Genesis to Revelation, right? All of Scripture is either pointing forward to Christ or pointing back. So, so just make that a goal in, in, your, in, your, um, in your reading. And, and the gospel is our ultimate source of comfort to know that our right standing with God rests on his promises and not our performance. Bask in the sweetness of God's promises. Satan likes to, to use the law to remind us of our failures, to discourage us, try to keep us imprisoned by the law and cause us to doubt the promises of God. That's why we must always be reminded of what God has done for us in the gospel and stand on his promises. And one way to do that is to, to sit under the preaching of the gospel, to, to daily remind ourselves that the, the thankfulness, um, always have an attitude of gratitude for what God has done for us, remind ourselves and be thankful for what he has done for us in Christ, right? And remember the story from the beginning, how um, Pastor Parker, how he was so gracious to, to um, Charles Spurgeon, and Spurgeon saw the gospel in that. Um, when, when others fail us, let's show them grace. Show them grace, just as, and that's how we remind them of the gospel. Right? When others sin against us, show them grace. Be a picture of the gospel to them. And let's not beat them over the head with the law, but restore them in a spirit of gentleness, as Galatians um, chapter 6 says. Uh, grace is a very effective tool in leading a person to repentance and beating them over the head with the law. So I want to close with an excerpt from a poem of, uh, of John Bunyan's uh, that I think reflects the freeing and comforting power of the gospel. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. Let us pray. Father God, we can't thank you enough for what you have done for us in Christ and that while we were yet sinners, yet your enemies, your son, you died for us on the cross in our place. Lord, let us as a church Exemplify the gospel in our lives, Father. Show grace to one another. Show the love of Christ that we have been shown to the world. In Jesus' name, amen.